Welcome to Learn With Lowell. Today we're joined with Joe Samaria, Dr. Joe Samaria, for the record, faculty at Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, associate clinical professor at the University of California in San Francisco, uh, psychologist, editor at the Journal of Psycho Psychoactive Drugs. Now, there might, for people who are listening in, there seems to be a thread there that is a common theme, uh, which should give you a hint what we're going to talk about today. But Joe, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to be here today. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here with you. Yes. So, uh, jumping right into it, psycho, um, psychedelic assisted therapy. It, it's a it's a bit of a buzzword in, in some regards. It does the research behind it also seems pretty exciting too in terms of what it could do for people with PTSD. Just the the idea that soldiers coming back and it can actually get the help that they deserve is amazing. But what is it like in practice when you're when you're when you're helping someone with these type of technologies? What is it? What does it look like? Can you just like for people who like they're probably like, what is this? What are we talking about? So if we can just start with uh, what is it? And then we can talk about like, what's unique? What do you like about it? And we can dive in from there. Sure, sure. So I guess I would start by saying that psychedelic therapy or psychedelics used for psychotherapeutic purposes is not um, it's not a monolith. There's lots of different Mm -hmm. um, forms that it can take. Indeed, uh, humans have had relationships with psychedelics for many thousands of years, predating modern psychiatry or hospitals or clinics or clinical trials or anything of that sort. So um, a quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. We could we could look first to cultures which have developed um, hundreds or thousands of years long history and relationship with different plant medicines or fung fungal medicines. Um, and look at the way that they practice and look at how that's evolved over time. And then all the way to kind of what's happening um, in sort of Western academic medical circles, looking at psychedelics as a catalyst for the psychotherapy process for particular, usually psychiatrically defined or DSM defined um, conditions like depression or PTSD. Um, so there's, so what it looks like, mm -hmm. I think varies highly on who are the people there? Is it a group mm -hmm. experience? Is it an individual patient experience? Who are the people there facilitating the experience? Are they doctors, nurses, therapists at a hospital? Are they um, curanderas or medicine people who have a long lineage of facilitating these kind of experiences? Is it a community experience? Is it ceremonial? Is it just mm -hmm. strictly clinical or medical? Um, and then secondly, what we would have to look at is what is the what are the drugs being used and what is the dose being used? So a, a, a psychedelic assisted therapy session with MDMA for PTSD might look pretty different than a high dose psilocybin session to treat uh, major depression. Um, so I can answer, I can talk about what it looks yes. like for those each of those settings, but I just wanted to say that from the get go that this it, it really could look all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know. I, should I should I flesh out one of those in particular or? Oh, no, let's let's take it piece by piece. So uh, and we're definitely going to uh, later. I literally have just written out the classic and the uh, non-classic uh, psychedelics and we could just like talk about them. But um, picking one to exemplify this, because I think the, you know, when I think of soldiers coming back and then finally being able to get something that actually can help them. That just like, like I mean, I like, you know, makes my heart, you know, pump a little bit. But uh, so what does that look like so if and it doesn't have to necessarily be soldiers there's so many other people that suffer from similar things but um so if i'm a soldier i came back from uh a tour and i'm suffering from some form of ptsd and uh normal therapy has just not worked um because what well actually let's start with there why does therapy normal therapy uh like high behavioral therapy that type of thing tend to not work as effectively for for ptsd yeah, there's there's a lot that would go in. That's a that's a loaded question. It's a very good question, actually. And so if we think about the frontline treatments that we use in psychiatry these days, it's either 
a pharmacological treatment, like a medication that's prescribed usually by a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner or somebody who has prescribing, prescribing privileges, um, or conventional psychotherapy. Like, as you mentioned, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is one example. There's other types of therapies that are used to treat trauma as well. Um, and so there's a few issues about why, I, I think maybe I'll zoom out a little bit and talk about mm -hmm. what I think even PTSD is. And then I can talk about those, the, the kind of, uh, standard frontline approaches that are conventionally used and then maybe compare them with psychiatric. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing about PTSD is like, it, you can like see it on brain scans, but you can see the change in the brain. Was, yeah, I was reading yeah. about this. It's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Totally, totally. Yeah, with different with different psychiatric disorders, there's often some sort of biomarker, something that can get mm -hmm. picked up of maybe fMRI or some other type of imaging. Um, as a as a as a psychotherapist, I, I am interested in that, but I'm I'm even more interested in the things that I see in front of me, like the looks mm -hmm. on my patients' faces, or uh, you know, if you see somebody heal from from PTSD, that, that you really can see it and how they carry their their bodies and how they how, you know, kind of the looks on that they that they uh, wear on their faces and. You know, it's really um, it speaks to the power of that uh, condition to be to be traumatized. It really has a powerful effect on the body, on the mind. Um, and so, somebody who has gone through something like, let's say, a horrific war trauma, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to understand what is happening in the brain, what's happening in the mind, and as a response to that trauma. But you can think of trauma as something that is overwhelming to the emotions and to the senses. It's just too much to be processed. So if you have basically a traumatic memory. It's like an unprocessed memory. It's not, it doesn't fit in nicely to all of your other consolidated memories. It's kind of bouncing around in there like a free radical. And it shows up in these different sorts of ways. Sometimes people get really intrusive symptoms. They might have nightmares like every night about the thing that was traumatic, or they might have flashbacks. This is something that's popularized maybe in the, in, in the movies or something. You mm -hmm. might see a soldier who uh, comes back to a peaceful place, but they hear a loud sound and it brings them back to. So this is this would be an example of some like intrusive symptoms of this unconsolidated memory bouncing around. So sometimes in PTSD we'll see hyper arousal. People that are like they're they're on edge, they're paranoid, they're looking around their shoulders, they're jumpy, and that's a very difficult way to live. Sometimes conversely, you'll see people who are hypo aroused. They're numb, they're shut down, they're depressed. They might be using chemicals like alcohol to numb themselves further. And so you don't see that healthy band in the middle range of emotional functioning. You either see hypo emotionality mm -hmm. or hype, hyper emotionality or hypo emotionality, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this speaks to kind of why some of the conventional treatments aren't, aren't so helpful. With like a pharmacological treatment, so this would be like um, sometimes I, I don't know if the, I, I can't think off the top of my head what all the medications that are approved to treat PTSD, but some of them are similar medications as are treated, are used to treat uh, depression and anxiety. Um, and, you know, they can chemically reduce symptoms somewhat. So somebody's having anxiety, flashbacks, nightmares, things of that sort, depression, it can help ease that a little bit, but I don't think they're ever going to be curative because they're not mm -hmm. helping process that unprocessed memory that's bouncing around. They're just reducing the noise that it's creating, right? So for a lot of people, that can be somewhat helpful. Their life can become more livable if it's like, gosh, I, you know, those those incessant intrusive thoughts that I've been getting since the trauma, they're quieting down a little bit. I can live my life a little more normally, but you see, it's never going to make, it's never going to be curative for that, the, the traumatic event. Psychotherapies, conventional talk therapies, can be curative 
but there's um there's a few issues there's a few problems with um with this one is is uh so if if somebody is chronically in a hyper aroused or hypo aroused state it's difficult to engage in the kind of emotional work that is needed to talk through and work through the trauma it's either if if i'm numb and shut down it's not going to mm-hmm. be accessible to me if you're my therapist and you say hey tell me about the trauma i'll say I don't know. It was really bad. And I won't say much more about that because it's mm-hmm. because of that shutdown numbing. If I'm hypo, if I'm sorry, I keep, can, I'm, I'm flip-flopping the words. If I'm hyper aroused, if I'm too emotionally aroused, I could, you know, uh, dissolve into a puddle. If you ask me one question about the trauma, I'll just be weeping the whole session. I won't be able to, con- I won't be able to think uh, clearly enough to like um, make sense of that, of that traumatic experience. So that's just a challenge baked into mm-hmm. treating trauma is the fact that with, with conventional psychotherapies, is it's hard to get somebody in that optimal band of emotionality in that middle ground. There's some other issues too, which is like, especially like in, in um, hospitals that treat veterans, like VA hospitals, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of excellent clinicians all over the country working in VA hospitals, working diligently to help veterans, successfully helping veterans using the therapies they have available to do so. Um, though I think there's a thread in the discussion of psychotherapy, at least in our country, that like brief behavioral symptom focused therapies are the gold standard therapies and other types of process oriented therapies, experiential, existential, psychodynamic therapies, somatic therapies, those may also be extremely useful for helping work through trauma. But if, if, if all that our providers are using for the most part in like VA hospitals, is this kind of one size fits all 12 sessions CB trauma focused CBT? That's just even even if it's an excellent type of therapy. I think CBT is a great type of therapy. And even if it was the best, um, it's still not gonna, gonna help everybody. Different people are gonna be helped by different sorts of things. So clinicians mm-hmm. are kind of handcuffed a bit to use these particular methods that they're being told are the very best methods when in fact um there's a, a personal very very variability and personal preference uh, has a lot to do with it too. I think um, uh, just to interject real quick because I was reading uh, your uh, Twitter feed and you mentioned this comment that uh, it's like six to eight. And not only is um, like the insurance companies are also getting involved in saying what people can, what, what clinicians can do. Mm-hmm. And I've, 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 se- I've seen this with a lot of doctors where it's like, I know this thing could do better, but my the insurance is shackling me and the patient and they're trying to like dictate what what happens so that's so that's an a- added factor like the six to eight sessions versus i think you were saying that like sometimes it's like six months before you can really build the foundation to have the tra- uh, tra- transformative effect that you want i think that's just like yeah. something i really want to uh, touch on because um i think a lot of people don't know I, most people uh don't go to the hospital or see a doctor or see a psychologist and so when they they go they assume it's just like okay everything is like works well you know, it's like mm-hmm. a well-oiled yeah. machine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, that is like an extra frustration. Also, is worth noting. Oh, totally. There's there's competing interests from hospital systems, from insurance mm-hmm. companies, from pharmacological company, from pharm- you know, big pharma companies, from the clinicians who are practicing, and then from the patients and from their families. And there's just so many different forces at play. And so I think the patient's voice and certainly the clinician's voice gets kind of diluted. Because insurance companies have to be satisfied, and pharma, phar- you know, pharma, pharma companies have their agendas to, to put forth mm-hmm. and stuff too. It, oftentimes, there's a financial incentive. So if like if you were, uh, you know, an insurance executive, and I said, hey, you know, there's this one type of therapy that we can do, 
And it takes kind of a long time. It takes at least six months, maybe even up towards of a year before we're seeing meaningful change. But we will see meaningful change, but it will take time, take a lot of work. Um, or there's this supposedly gold standard therapy. We can deliver it in six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks. Um, it's exclusively focused on reducing symptoms and people, and it will make people quickly kind of get better. Mm-hmm. You know, that, for you, that would be very attractive. The second option would be very attractive. Be, that, would be so, that sounds so much more cost effective. Um, in long-term follow-up studies where they do the, like really brief um, kind of superficial treatments, I don't think the results last that long. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you see somebody a year out or two years out, how are they doing? Maybe back, maybe back to how they were doing before they got treatment. Somebody's mm-hmm. in a longer-term psychotherapy, six months, a year, two years, um, and you check on them two years later, oftentimes they're doing a little better than they were mm-hmm. when things left off. So there's, there's this kind of threshold that needs to be passed of like enough time and energy spent working through this problem. And so this is a problem for patients too, because who has time, who has money, everybody has running out of time, everybody's running out of money. Um, And so just, we can see it across our culture, quick and easy fixes are being desired, because we are so occupied with whatever with our work or our lives. And um, it's, it's difficult to think about investing a year. But but then if you think about it another way, it's like a year of therapy, let's say it costs $5,000 $5,000 or something, ten, you know, it's between five dollars and $10,000 of if you pay privately to see a really good therapist per year. Um, that's, the, you know, th- that can produce a real change. And it can really like somebody could be suicidal, or they could be just wrapped with terrible mental health symptoms. Um, and they could be free from some of those symptoms if they put in that, that time and that effort. And you think about $5,000, I mean, that's a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. You think about, you know, if you need some dental work done or something else, you need something redone to the house, you need to fix your car. These are the, you know, these kinds of costs are, we often justify it. We say it's worth it. I needed, you know, my, my car, I needed a new car. I needed to shell up $500 or $5,000 because I needed uh, another form of transportation. Um, and I, I would hope over time that people could value their own psychological lives enough to say it's worth it. If I have the means, it is worth it to invest this time and this money. Which brings us to psychedelics though, which seem like they could be more powerful and I don't know about cost effective, but more maybe more quickly effective than a, than a conventional psychotherapy, you know? Mm-hmm. So then um, if you, if we're looking at the PTSD route, um, the normal methods haven't been effective. Uh, you want to try something like psych, uh, psychedelic ther- assisted therapy. How do you, um, you know, we can broaden this as well, but I'm trying to keep it tight because it's like, it's hard to generalize because of how uh, individual people are. Yeah. Um, how would someone know that this is something that they should do? Like something that they should explore talking to. And then, because well, I was talking to Brahm and a couple other people about this subject. Uh, Brahm is a VC who was on, previously on the show. But uh, they, they talked about how, um, it's hard to find people that you can trust to have these conversations with to say like, Hey, this is what I need. Uh, or like, this is what I'm, I'm I'm having a problem with. So what, what routes do I go down? So I'm always, I'm always, you know, before we even go down, like, Hey, what can you do? I would, uh, I'm always curious, like, how, how do you think about knowing if it's a right route that someone should go down? I think that's a, that's an excellent question because there are lots of people out there where psychedelics are maybe going to be the helpful route. And there's other Mm -hmm. people where it's not, it's either, They'll be contraindicated, like there's some reason why they shouldn't take a psychedelic or or it just may not may not be the thing that's helpful for that person compared to something else. Um, so it could be some any other variable in their lives that they could they could change. It, it, may, it just may not be the it, uh, introduction of psychedelics that will help people. So your question is very good. Um, and it's tricky, too, because it's like if 
I can tell you what I think, but I would also mm -hmm. like to think about it from the patient's perspective. Like, who would they go to? A lot of patients, if they would go, especially, in, you know, if they're in a more, I don't even mean this necessarily politically, but just a more uh, conservative area in terms of like medical practice or something. Um, you know, they might tell their doctor, hey, I was reading about psychedelics and it said it's really good for depression. Where can I go do some psychedelics? Maybe half the time their their doctor will you know try to steer them away from that and say oh it's very experimental nobody knows anything if it's helpful yet why don't you why don't we find you a therapist why don't we find you a psychiatrist um, so I could appreciate from a patient's perspective it could be really discouraging what yeah. I would say is if somebody has a curiosity to explore psychedelics that's a good sign if somebody has found that conventional treatments aren't working for them in psychiatry. That may be a good sign. Um, if somebody doesn't have like a first degree relative with a serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia or like severe bipolar or uh, schizoaffective disorder or something like that, um, that may be also a promising sign. I don't know if the jury's out about psychedelics being okay for that population of severely mentally ill or not. I think there's a, it's a it's a heated debate. There are some assumptions in our field that people who have a first degree relative who has a psychotic illness or something shouldn't use psychedelics because there's the risk it could, you know, um, push forth some sort of dormant psychosis in that person. Um, so, but I, the jury's still out about that one, but I think that's a safe way to, a safe route would be like, yeah, if there's not an immediate family member with mm -hmm. a serious mental illness, that's another good sign. And so, yeah, I would just be starting, starting to put together clues like this, mainly is the person curious about psychedelics and have they tried, have they genuinely tried other treatments? Um, and if the answer is yes to both of those, that may be a good sign to have a conversation about, about psychedelics. And hopefully there's more and more clinicians out there in the world who are, in, in, even if they're not practicing psychedelic therapy, that they're informed about psychedelic therapy so they could say, well, here's the risks, here's the benefits, here's some places where you can go access that, here's a ketamine clinic, here's a clinical trial that's nearby, you might try one of these two options. Mm -hmm. um, but but anyway does that i don't know if that starts to answer your yeah question. no it, it it does it's I, I think of it um like circles that get smaller and smaller and smaller as you represent different population sizes so you have like all of clinical psychologists or psychiatrists that could potentially help you and then you have the, the ones that know about psychedelics that would be able to have a conversation with about it and then it's the ones that aren't going to immediately discourage you <laughs> from going mm -hmm. down that line and it gets like smaller and smaller and smaller and it's already um i don't uh like for a lot of people it's hard to talk about mental health it's like it's a difficult thing especially when they're struggling if you're in a conservative area or just anywhere it's like really hard to say hey i need help and um and ask for help i know like even me like i'll, I'll uh you know I'll, I'll take a little bit before i write someone an email and ask for their help on something just to see if i can take a whack at it myself mm -hmm. and um so if it's if it's already hard enough for someone just to say hey i need help and then there's all that mountain to climb over. Um, it's good that there's certain watering holes like where you work at, where you do your research at, that people can go to, and then you can kind of get that sense of like birds of a feather if if they're they're doing similar stuff like that. It kind of like validates like this is a good person to talk to, mm -hmm. versus just like if your if your immediate uh, clinician says you know maybe not, but you're also very dissatisfied with what you're getting, and you've heard about some of these really great uh, outcomes. So you can explore it by finding research institutions that are doing that work, and then maybe they'll know people. I feel like that's maybe a route to like get around it. Totally, you're, you're absolutely right. There's so much inertia to have to overcome yeah. for somebody to get to, to treatment in the first place. I, I'm I'm the same as you. I like sometimes I, I I I put off seeking help until it's you know, it's, it's it's late. And I think 
there's probably a, a, a message we get like a, there's a, a, a cultural ethos in our country about being self-sufficient and taking care of mm -hmm. ourselves. And it's, it's, it's a valuable, um, uh, uh, moral, I think, but also it, it can isolate us too and prevent us from reaching out to one another. Also like guys t typically tend to struggle with that too. We, we, you know, we're, we we get that ad an additional message that we should be able to handle stuff on our own, just, you know, rub some dirt on it and get, get going. And, um, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of stigma to overcome. So part of it, it would be like reducing the stigma that exists just around seeking uh, help for, for psychological, psychiatric reasons. And then to your point, yeah, like the more educated people are about it, the, 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 the bigger those internal circles are going to be, the smaller the external circles are going to be, if that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. um, th this is why I think it's really important. Like for, I, it's not that I think I'm so great, but people, me or people like me are, are communicating with the public more and are mm -hmm. speaking openly g going on shows like this or, teaching or training like I, I had did a training at uh, San Francisco General Hospital recently in their trauma recovery center and talked to a lot of really lovely cl clinicians there who many were curious about psychedelics most most of them didn't know much but they were very good therapists doing a lot of great therapy every day and so now now they're equipped with that information if they have a patient who says hey I'm interested in, in psilocybin what can you tell me about that now they're, they're now they're armed now they're equipped to be able to give them a reasonable answer and say hey well here's the rest here's the benefits this is where it's taking place versus no 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 that stuff is not medicine it's just uh, recreational drugs that are it's going to harm you you know is there a detail when you're talking to these clinicians and you're training them in the in these new technologies uh, is there are there details or, or type or data that seems to get them to the point where it's like an aha like this is something to take seriously yeah, it depends on the the person. Um, some people are really swayed by numbers and graphs mm -hmm. and charts and that kind of stuff. Other people are really swayed by like stories of patients. And so, um, you know, since we've been talking about MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD here today, um, I'll talk a little bit about maps. Um, you know, I think that the they they have two. Uh, uh, clinicians who have been really seminal in developing the framework for delivering MDMA-assisted therapy. It's a married couple, um, a psychiatrist and a nurse, Michael Mithoffer and Annie Mithoffer, and they're in South, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, they are, um, I've, I've seen them for the last 10 plus years present their data about what's been happening in phase two, phase three trials for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And the numbers look really good. Like just on paper, you'll see, you know, 70 or 80% of people who were enrolled in this study with severe PTSD where other treatments didn't work improved enough that they don't have PTSD anymore. So that's a big deal. I, I, I think I may be fudging the numbers a little bit. I can't remember mm -hmm. if it's like two thirds or three quarters, but you know, it's in that ballpark, but it's like, it's, sometimes a sleight of hand can be done in psychiatric research where you say, oh, we gave this, these patients this treatment and 90% of them improved. But if they only improved 5%, th that's not a meaningful change. But if I'm just mm -hmm. reporting that 90% improved, that could sound like it's a really awesome therapy mm -hmm. or really awesome treatment. But with the MDMA-assisted therapy, yeah, you'll see people that they use um, a, a measure called the CAPS. It's, it uh, stands for the Clinician Administered PTSD Scale. And I, I don't remember the the metrics of the scale, but I think if we if we think of it as like a hundred is the maximum PTSD you could have, and zero is like no presence of any PTSD symptoms, and like if you're below fifty, you're not considered to have PTSD anymore. I know these numbers mm -hmm. may be a little off. I can't remember yeah. exactly what they are, but if, I'm just using that as a model. So we'll have a bunch of people that are way above fifty. They're seventy, eighty, ninety. 
think about this 70 or 80, maybe 70%, 80% of the people in the studies um, are, after treatment with, with MDMA no longer meet criteria for PTSD. So they're b- well below 50. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a meaningful change. That's really going to affect how, what somebody's life looks like. So for some folks, seeing those kinds of numbers is what is, um, that's that aha moment where they say, okay, there's some promise here. For others, it's hearing testimonials. It's like hearing from patients. There's been a few folks, actually veterans, that MAPS treated. That, so Michael and Annie Midhope are those, those clinicians I previously mm-hmm. mentioned, treated. And a few of them, they consented to have their all their sessions filmed um, and then later consented to um, uh, have that their, their, the, the, the footage of their sessions to be shown to other clinicians. So it was, I will tell you, one of the, I can't remember the the gentleman's name, a former Marine Corps veteran, I believe, who was really struggling after a, a, a bad firefight in Iraq. Um, he had this really remarkable session and it, and it transformed his life. And he did this deep, awesome inner work. And it was, it was so, it changed my life because I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I can see trauma more clearly because whatever the drug did, it allowed him to visualize his internal world and the effect of trauma on it and express that visualization in a really meaningful, like artistic way where that the clinician could engage with and they could work together to kind of process and clarify what's, what's going on on the inside of him. And so, um, so I'm, I'm thankful to whether it's those particular veterans. That, and so that one particular guy, I, I wish I could remember his name. Um, he, he's spoken at conferences and things, and he's gone on like speaking tours to talk about his experience as a veteran who had really bad PTSD. And he said, this, this changed my life. And so for other folks hearing a testimonial like that mm-hmm. will be all that they need to hear to say, this person was miserable. Nothing was working. They were suicidal. And this thing almost miraculously kind of flipped things around. And so, so, th- so that what is the aha moment could be different from, mm-hmm. for, from person to person, but it's, it, we're fortunate that there are these different kind of forms of evidence um, uh, available to us, qualitative or quantitative or what have you. Is there a, like a certification process with the training so that you can make sure that there's a state, like when you, when you're telling people about it, they're like, oh, this is interesting. I want to learn more uh, to standardize so that they could, that, you know, they're going to do a, Good job with this new stuff. That's it's another really awesome question, Lowell. And I will say right now it's kind of the wild west, mm. although standards are being developed and there are different bodies which accredit clinicians to practice this type of therapy. For example, uh, I'm trained by MAPS. I can, uh, so I'm trained in MDMA assisted therapy by MAPS. So that means I engaged in the training that they set forth which is uniform. Everybody goes through it together. We watch that footage of those veterans. We do different practices and exercises and things. And they give you certification at the end. In the clinical trials that they have been doing using MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, they will have adherence raters looking at the therapy, basically um, watching therapy sessions all day and saying, is this person Mm -hmm. adhering to the protocol? Are they adhering to the manual? Is this person adhering to the protocol and the manual and so forth? And the hope is that they can, you know, tweak everybody so that they're all, every clinician, every therapist is different and every patient Mm -hmm. they work with is different. So there's always something different happening, but at least that there's some fidelity to what they're doing. Um, They they use these adherence raters. So, so MAPS is kind of an accrediting body. They give a certificate. If you do their training, there are now um, freestanding schools and university programs across the, the continent offering psychedelic assisted therapy training most often in the form of a one-year training uh, offering a certificate at the end. Mm. 
Um, it'll be interesting to see if degree programs emerge, like maybe you get a master's in psychedelic mm -hmm. assisted therapy. I believe there was one program like that emerging at the University of Ottawa, um, a master's in psychedelic assisted therapy and research, I believe is what it is. Um, but yeah, you'll see like different training programs. The California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco um, offered the, I think it was the first of this in this modern era of a, of a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapy. I, I trained there as well. And it was like a, a really mixed cohort. There's doctors, nurses, psychologists, therapists, social workers, chaplains, um, you know, even, even people, the acupuncturists, midwives, I think mm -hmm. even sometimes like counseling lawyers and people who have like other adjacent um, professions can can be trained in this in this model. So CIS has their own standards, and now we're seeing them at other university settings like Emory, Columbia, UPenn, um, and our program that we have at UC Berkeley, um, which uh, we're we're concluding our first year. Started in the, the 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 training component of the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics um, offers a one year. Tra training and psilocybin facilitation, and we're we're concluding our first cohort uh, in, the, in, in the in the next month or so. So we we, we will uh, pretty pretty newly mint uh, you know twenty four people, twenty four clinicians to go back out in the world, and 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 deliver this kind of therapy in the settings that are available to them. We have reciprocity with um, the Oregon Health Authority. Oregon is a state where psilocybin assisted therapy is now legal. You can apply with the Oregon Health Authority to get a psilocybin facilitator facilitator's license, and they want to see that you have the right kind of training, and so mm -hmm. they acknowledge the training that we deliver as sufficient to to go back to Oregon to work, for example. Of of all that you're seeing, if you were, you know, I think of all these people. At one point in time, neuroscience or psychology was one of the biggest majors because so many people want to help people with mental illness because it's been such a dearth of help that people can get. Mm -hmm. And they're, I can imagine from the clinician's point of view where they're spending some, they want to give the time that is needed to help a patient, but they can't either from insurance or other means. And then when they do have the time, you know, the stars align where they finally can do everything that is needed uh, to help that patient, they still aren't getting the outcomes that would really help the patient. I can imagine that it's very discouraging for them. So to be able to not retool, but like get extra tools in their uh, uh, tackle box, wherever the you know the term would be, so they can help people. Would actually be pretty powerful. So there's, I see like a a, a massive massive opportunity with all that goodwill for people who want to help people with these degrees to kind of find their way into helping people a lot. Um, if there if there are psychologists like that listening in, or psychologists, mental health uh, professionals, etc., how do they know? How how do you, is it like? Of the schools you talked about, are there ones that you go to for certain things? Like for uh, UC Berkeley, you have psilocybin, um, and then uh, MAPS sounds like MDMA. So it's like there's like schools for different specific things. That's what you have to think about. So like, what do you want to specialize in based on what you're interested in terms of how you want to help people? That's, a, yeah, that's that's one possible way to look at it. And MAPS certainly, that for forever now, their mm -hmm. flagship psychedelic has been MDMA. So their training focuses on doing MDMA therapy, which is mostly trauma, you know, PTSD therapy. Our program at Berkeley has emphasized psilocybin. That's the compound that I have the most familiarity with. Um, and I think the same is true for, for my colleagues there as well, most of my colleagues there as, as well. Um, but you know, then then CIIS, for example, another place I trained, um, it was more pluralistic. Like we had a little training on ketamine, it was a lot on, on classic psychedelics, it was a lot, quite a bit on MDMA. And so I think it's less that it's like this school, this drug, that school, that drug, mm -hmm. and so on. But it's more like this school, this particular or theoretical orientation, this school, you know, a different sort of theoretical orientation. I think CI, I recall CIS as being a place where 
Um, it felt very congruent with my identity at the time, which was a, a therapist in clinical trials in academic medical centers. I think they were really trying to keep, th keep things above ground, keep things toward, towards the legal end of, of the, le the legal side of things. And so that was, they, they were emphasizing that people could work in clinical trials right now legally, rather than that people would go do their own things working, um, you know, in the, in the so-called underground, working on their own or something. And so that was, I think, the orientation of CIS. And that's not to say other programs do encourage working in the underground or working in, in gray markets or, or illegal settings. But um, but at Berkeley, for example, um, uh, you know, it's, I, I think there there was a need in the field for a program that that's that specifically focused on psilocybin, just like MAPS was specifically focusing on MDMA. Um, likely psilocybin, if we look at the FDA approval route, um, MDMA is going to be the first uh, psychedelic, quote unquote, psychedelic that is um, will be FDA approved and thus federally legal. Um, and I think psilocybin will be a close second. Psilocybin uh, still has uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy for for treatment-resistant depression or for major depression, still has to complete phase three of of mm -hmm. uh, of, of study. Um, I kind of forgot your question a little. Uh, I just was sort of rambling about different schools. You asked. Something no, I, I, I was I was happy with it's you know like in a conversation. It's like uh where you where you started is not as interesting as where you're going. So I'm happy for us to meander where uh, I was just uh. The original question was basically, you know, where would a psychologist go uh, to find different things? So the idea is there like some specialization in uh, uh, institution? You're saying to some extent there is with uh, with some of them, but some of them uh, like with UC Berkeley do have psilocybin type ones that you can like specialize in. But it's really um, like you can get things a little bit everywhere. Um, which yeah, is, like, yeah. If I was a if I were a clinician who was interested in this field but I didn't mm -hmm. know anything, I would just you know kind of browse around different websites, look at see look at MAPS's, look at CIS's, look at I think that you know Alma or Fluence or the Integrative Psychiatry Institute. There's all these different places that offer training in psychedelic therapy, and they're all going to differ. So if 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 you read the, about the program and something resonates with you, you, say this makes sense to me. This is the way I would like to. This is the orientation I'd like to take. This is the way I'd like to learn things. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's probably a good, it's a good sign. Just the, kind of just like shopping for any kind of school. If you wanted to go to yeah. law school or medical school or psychology school or whatever, like, you know, different institutions are going to have different orientations and different specialties and, and, and such. For, uh, so UC Berkeley, like focusing on that since, uh, that's, uh, um, where you work, the, uh, is there a, uh, a mechanism as people are trained and they're going out into the field to take what they're learning hands-on the experience of it and refactor it into the accreditation or uh, uh, process of teaching other people so that uh, the like it just improves 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 like this like reinforcement cycle of people getting the best that there is in terms of the, the certi certification and then when people go out there they're able to take the experience that they get and then bring it back in and kind of like mentor or train other people or just in general how do you think about that process of like you you know never stop learning yeah yeah i want to make sure i understand your question so you're saying will somebody come through our program and then uh, help me understand what you were, what you yeah. were asking about. so the the i'm more curious about this concept of you can get a cert certification uh through your program is there another mechanism is there a thought process behind people coming back through after they have experience to you know mentor or teach other people or yeah. kind of have like a workshop to continue the continue the growth of learning so that, that everyone gets better at helping people totally totally yeah i understand your question now um so in in a lot of professions let's take psychedelics out of it for mm -hmm. a second in a lot of professions 
um, especially in like healthcare oriented professions, we have to complete continuing education units to, to, you know, stay on top of our license and stay on top of the body of knowledge, which is evolving since whenever we went to school. So doctors, nurses, psychologists certainly have to, um, you know, take a certain number of uh, credits of coursework each year just to make sure we're up to date on what is going on in the field. And I think this the same kind of thing could apply to psychedelics too. I would very much hope that anybody, myself included, who goes through a training program or multiple training programs in psychedelics, continue, just like you're saying, lifelong learning continues to bone up on what's changing. The field right now is very different than it was 10 years ago. It's, it's, it's remarkably different. And so if I was just, if you zapped me in a, uh, a time machine from 10 years ago to now, I would be very disoriented because I was, and so you could imagine somebody who's not keeping up on the latest research and trends and so on is also going to be very disoriented. So I would hope that that's um, built into the ethos of practitioners, that they're, that mm. continuing education is important. And I think as the field becomes less wild west and a little more formalized, that there's going to be more formal CE continuing education opportunities for people. We're trying to put together a CE program at Berkeley, for example, for our mm. graduates so that they can, and I, might, I don't know what form it's going to take, but that they'll have some ability to engage and re-engage with the material well after they have completed the program. And then to your other point, absolutely. Like, I, I think that um, the hope is, you know, the psychedelic community, it's, it's, it's changed pretty rapidly in the last few years, but it's still a pretty tight knit kind of niche community. I mean, not that there's not infighting and stuff within the community, but it's, it's small, it's a, it's still a smaller community. Um, and so we're, we're trying to grow. And that means mm -hmm. like, absolutely. If somebody, if somebody trains in our program and they do really well and they do great work for five years or 10 years, I could totally imagine them coming back and like teaching in the program or men, or that we could send supervisees and mentees to that person to kind of shadow them or learn from them. Um, I, there's a lot of, the, you know, the, the sky's the kind of limit in, uh, the, uh, in terms of the possibilities, but I would very much hope that it would be like a, a self-growing uh, uh, enterprise, you know, not just our, mm -hmm. our, our program, but the whole, you know, community across the, the country, continent, world. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a huge fan of the apprenticeship model in terms of uh, training, where um, even like masters, they basically like go through and like learn more stuff and in teaching other people and bringing them up, they, they, they refine their skills. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of the apprenticeship model, mainly for this book that is over. Oh, I can't get it. There it is. Uh, ben Franklin by Walter Isaacson. They talk uh -huh. about apprenticeships in there. It's like one of my favorite books. But uh -huh. um, this idea, I think it's just if you're it's a, it's a great way to just like level up your skills to help. It's like I think most people have heard this this uh, this idea that if you want to learn something, if you can teach it to someone else, you're going to you're going to entrench it in yourself even more mm -hmm. for. Um, so for psilocybin, what about it is interesting to you to the point like what, what about it interests you, I guess, like just starting in there, um, because you are dedicating like a big component of your life is psilocybin. Yeah. In terms of like yes. the research, your work. Yeah. 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 I, I think the bigger thing is that classic psychedelics interest me and psilocybin is kind of the flagship of the classic psychedelics, at least in academic and medical circles for a number of reasons. One is like, mm. it's, it's easily, it's more easily studied than something like LSD just because it's, it lasts a shorter amount of time. Like the mm -hmm. reason we don't see so much there, there is a, 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 some good LSD research being done mostly in Europe, I think. But um, the reason we don't see so much like LSD research in North America is um, it's, it's kind of it's a slightly more unwieldy chemical to use clinically. So, for example, if you're my patient in a clinical trial, you're going to show up at 730 
um, will bustle around. To get, if you're coming show, showing up for your psychedelic session, you know, you have to get a drug test and you know all this other sort of stuff. And we're gonna go get the drug from the front. By the time you're actually imbibing the medicine, it's you know, say it's 9:30 or something. Mm. So if that's a psilis, if that's psilocybin, if that's synthetic psilocybin in a capsule, even a high dose, in six hours, you're you're gonna be good. And and like this is 9:30, you know, by 3:30, by four o'clock. You could go home for the day. You could have your friend, roommate, partner, whoever, pick you up, take you home. You're, you're going to be in good shape. You're going to be totally sober. Um, and you're going to have a session scheduled with us the next day to, to meet and process your experience. If it's LSD, it's, you know, it's more like 12 hours. That's going to be a long day. And so mm. I, I just want to emphasize that, like, I think I think every psychedelic has beautiful and has something to offer. Um, I'm, I am the most interested in psilocybin and it's more because I'm most interested in classic psychedelics um, mm -hmm. and psilocybin. I just had the opportunity to work with the most, both in, in graduate school doing research and then um, as faculty at UCSF doing doing uh, therapy and research with it as, as well. And so it's interesting to psychedelic uh, uh, psilocybin is interesting to me because um, you know it's a little less linear what happens than let's say an MDMA session. Not that MDMA sessions are so predictable and linear or something, but you know, it's a little bit more like an MDMA assisted therapy for trauma is a little bit more like a conventional, it's like a deep, good conventional therapy session where somebody's talking through processing trauma. Maybe it's showing up in their body. Maybe it's showing up in their speech or something, but there's something there to be processed and worked with. And hopefully with skilled clinicians, they can, they can work through their, their trauma with psilocybin sessions. You know, it's almost like, I don't even know what's going to happen that day. Um, so it, it tends to have a very, uh, you know, beneficial effect from people's depression. Um, but it's, it's less clear how that happens. Somebody might be like, if, if you were to see, um, some of the, the, the participants that I've, uh, had the privilege of sitting with during their clinical trials session to set like person to person, the sessions could look very different. Sometimes people are very vocal and they're very active and they're saying, I'm having all this imagery and I really want to talk to you about it. It's making me rethink my life. Sometimes people never talk. Sometimes people lie still for six hours and they're just sitting there and we're just kind of sitting there with them and we're, you know, we're, we're present with them and we're help them with their bodily needs. You know, they might need to help walk into the bathroom or getting a drink or something or um, extra blanket, that sort of stuff. But we're just sort of quietly abiding with them and letting them have their own internal process. And some of this is mediated by dose too. So mm -hmm. like in clinical trials, we don't use um, mushrooms. We use synthetic psilocybin. That's the active component in psychedelic mushrooms um, and psilocybin-containing mushrooms. So the dosage is a little different. You know, sometimes when people are thinking about how much mushrooms to take, they think about in terms of grams. Like I took a gram mm -hmm. or took two grams or three grams or something. With with uh, with synthetic psilocybin, we talk about milligrams. Um, so it's it's because it's well, there's no other material we're giving the person. It's just the the the, the pure psilocybin. Um, so for example, a, a common dose that we would use in a study, a high dose would be 25 milligrams. And that mm -hmm. would be a, you know, give or take, I, I've heard different uh, estimates, but like every five milligrams of psilocybin, you could think of as like a gram of mushrooms. So if mm -hmm. I gave you uh, five milligrams of psilocybin, that would be like eating a gram of shrooms. If I gave you 10 milligrams of psilocybin, that would be like eating two grams of shrooms. So 25 milligrams is usually a pretty high dose. It's kind of akin to maybe somewhere between three and five grams of mushrooms. Um, How much is a, just a, like, just so I can visualize it. I, I'm a boring person. I, I don't do drugs. Uh, <laughs> I tell my doctor this all the time, but I'm very excited for the, the technology that's out there. Yeah. How much is a gram of mushrooms? 
I've eaten mushrooms before, but I've never thought about it in like gram. Yeah, like, I guess when people, what, yeah, yeah, what does it look maybe, like? What's like the amount? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna think about that. Like usually, people eat dried mushrooms. Yeah, um, and I guess uh, a gram would be like yeah, like a small handful or something. Okay. Um, if you had five grams, they had to be like you know a pretty like a like a baggie yeah, okay. of them or something. You All right. Know? Yeah, so I can picture it. A lot of chewing involved with five grams of mushrooms. I think. Mm -hmm. I, I recently watched an interview with Mike Tyson where he just took like a, a giant bag and just sat there eating it for like 10 minutes. Of, of uh, psychedelic mushrooms? Uh, he, it was mushrooms. I don't know if it was psychedelic mushrooms, but uh, it was just uh -huh. like a, a big hand. It was really weird. He was just like happy as a clam. I was with, <laughs> uh, um, I think it was, I don't know, if you, if you Google, I'm sure it'll come up. It was like, it was a pretty interesting because he was just like happy. He was just like enjoying it, slowly yeah. eating. It took him a really long time to, to, to eat it all. It wouldn't surprise me if he, if it was psychedelic mushrooms. He's Mike Tyson, somebody who is uh, he's I mean he's a very interesting uh, person. Yeah. And he like more recently sounds like he got really into psychedelics. He's had experiences with like DMT and mm. psilocybin that he's talked about, and you know he's 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 a troubled guy. He's had a really kind of amazing life, but also a really rough life and traumatic life in a lot of ways. And um, he the way he was speaking after he would use psychedelics, I, I heard a few you know sound bites on interviews and things, and he was. Sounded like it really helped him, really changed something for him. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that he's sitting around eating a bag of mushrooms. I hope I hope he's being careful though. I don't I don't know if he was careful in this case. He just he just consumed it. Uh, I'd love to get your uh, take. If you if you watch it and let me know, I'll, I'll let people know in the show uh, show notes or something. But, okay, so uh, uh, milligram gram, we've established what that looks like. Yes. People can go look at uh, Mike Tyson. You know, it looked like a like a bunny eating like a head of lettuce. It was just like intense. But wow. so. So it wasn't like that, but it was just kind of funny to watch. Uh, but um, so you you, you you give them that amount of dosage. It's gone in six uh, hours. I, I, I interrupted you. So I'm trying to like get you back on where you were. Yeah. Yeah. So basically you were asking like, why am I interested in, in, in yeah. psilocybin in particular? So sometimes we give people lower doses. Um, yeah. If it's like the first dose and if we give them two doses over the course of a study, the, the first dose will be a low, might be a lower dose. So it might be like 10 milligrams. And those are pretty interesting sessions, actually, too. They're much, somebody's, you know, on, on 10 milligrams of psilocybin, somebody's definitely tripping. They're definitely in an altered state of consciousness, but they're not so out there in the stratosphere that they can't converse with us. So they're usually mm. very conversational. Um, and those sessions are very, like, um, maybe more resembling conventional therapy, where somebody's processing unconscious material or processing trauma or something. By processing, I mean just, like, talking it through with another person and getting reflection and trying to understand it and stuff um, with those high dose sessions. Yeah. We never really know what's going to happen. Somebody could have a, what we call a mystical experience. Like they could really be in touch with, I don't know, some like it, 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 it resembles mystical experiences as are described in religious texts or something where they're like in contact with some greater thing. Um, they may be totally in a, in a, in a trance. They may be really uncomfortable. They may be blissful. They may be weeping, you know, we don't really know, but it's, it's, it's just the mystery of it that is most interesting to me um, mm -hmm. that like, it's, it's so personal to that individual. And, and actually there's no, even though they will tell us or their therapists all about their experience, there's no way we're going to know what actually like happened in their head when they were mm -hmm. eating mushrooms, but, but it, pro it produces powerful changes. And there are some folks on the, so I'm, I'm more on the like clinical side, clinical psychology, psychotherapy, that sort of stuff. And there are people on, kind of molecular biology, um, you know, neurobiology side of things that um, are, are trying to understand the effects that psychedelics have on the brain. One is a colleague at UCSF named Robin Carhart-Harris, uh, a, a very well-known uh, neuroscientist and psychedelic researcher. And he has a few 
theories about like what is happening with psychedelic consumption to help people overcome things like addiction or eating disorders or depression. Um, and I think it just sort of like softened, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm very clumsily translating, I think from the neuroscience, but I think it essentially just like softens. One of the things it does is it sort of softens belief systems. So if mm-hmm. I'm depressed and it makes me think I'm, I'm, a, I'm real lousy and I'm not good at anything and I've only been a failure. And that's a really crystallized, rigid belief that I have about myself. Using psilocybin might relax that belief and I might know what it's like to be like, oh, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to think that about myself. Without mm-hmm. the psilocybin, it might be more entrenched and it may be harder to break free from. So it softens beliefs. Another idea is that it softens our sense of self. So like, Similarly, like if I'm a person who thinks I'm who I'm very depressed and I think I'm crummy and lousy and so on, and that's contributing talking to myself that way is contributing to the depression. If I'm if I realize that I'm bigger than just myself and I'm like I'm part of nature and I'm part of earth and I'm part of all of humanity, um, that may also take some of the emphasis off. In the same sort of way that people look at the stars and, and it puts them mm-hmm. things into perspective. And it's like, oh, that thing that she said to me yesterday that hurt my feelings, it, it doesn't matter that much. Um, it, it hurt my feelings at the time, but it doesn't matter that much. Um, look at these stars. Look at how unknown the universe is. So it's, I think it's it's a little like that, where it's like mm-hmm. our sense of self can be expanded and, and, and our little trivial problems, which can be depressing, affect us less. Um, the another One other way of kind of talking about the same thing is like, you know, you can think about n- uh, neural pathways of like, thinking and relating and being, including how we relate to ourselves, being being fixed and crystallized. That was I was saying before, you know, it's like it's kind of like being at the top of a of a of a hill going skiing and there's one track to go down. And it's just like it's just you're just gonna fall into that groove and go down. We can go try to go another way and we'll slip into that groove and go down. And adding psychedelics is like having a fresh, I think I'm borrowing from maybe Michael Pollan here. I think mm-hmm. he's somebody who's used this metaphor before, but it's like having a fresh coat of powder on that mountaintop. And so you can really be flexible to go anyway and be like, I don't really want to go that way. I don't want to think about myself that way. I don't want to act towards myself that way. I want to try a different way. Um, and it's it's, it's, and, and that's these, me- these ways of understanding what's happening in the brain, um, I think are congruent with what we're seeing clinically, because you'll see somebody who, for example, um, there've been studies done using psilocybin to help people quit smoking. Mm. And you see people who've tried like, genuinely to quit like three or four different times maybe they tried chantix or some other pharmacological agent or they tried different behavioral strategies and stuff and it just wasn't working after a psilocybin session they might say i'm never smoking again i'm not doing that and it's just so it's so clear that that's what they want to do it's almost like that pathway was opened up to them in their mind that was previously closed down they couldn't have imagined just relinquishing something that was been so you know so such a part of their life for so long smoking you know in that mm-hmm. case do, do you have to like prime them or anything to get them to have experiences that go around the trauma or w- what they need to work on or does the brain naturally go to those regions that's uh, lol your questions are really good this is a good one too and i think i think sometimes we do see that spontaneous that your mind goes where it needs to go to fix stuff. Like, I think this is why people who just recreationally use psychedelics sometimes say, I thought I was just kind of partying with my friends at the beach or something. And in fact, I processed a lot of grief about my grandma that I never got around to, or I like thought about my childhood and I it was very embarrassing. I was crying in front of my friends, but I felt much better the next day or something. Um, and so sometimes we would see this sort of spontaneous change. And there, I think there is 
I don't know what, how to describe it really. Is there wisdom in the compound? Is there wisdom in the mo molecule? Is, is it somehow unlocking our own wisdom to go towards our own pain, pain points? Or is there some synergy between us and the medicine? Are we communing with something higher than us? And is that encouraging us to look at our pain points or whatever? Who knows? Who, who, mm. who knows? But, but yes, I absolutely, I would see that spontaneous. Um, I, I could imagine we would see that, that I, I have seen that kind of spontaneous improvement in people without there being any kind of priming or any kind of, I want this to be a therapeutic moment. Mm. That being said, um, the ways that psychedelics are used in clinical trials in academic medical centers these days um, there's really different phases to the treatment. There's a prep phase and there's a dosing phase and there's an integration phase. So the preparation phase would be a number of contact hours that the patient would have with their therapists. It might be two, three, four visits of a couple hours each to get to know each other. So they feel safe mm -hmm. together to learn a little bit about the patient's history. Um, and also, to your point, to, to encourage examination of the particular thing they're trying to bring to treatment. Um, and so as therapists, we try to help people form these sort of intentions that they're going to bring to their psychedelic experience. And we try, mm -hmm. to, we try to shape them so that they're likely to be successful. And we try to shape them so that they're useful for the, for the patient. For example, if I had a really depressed patient and I said, what is your intention for the session? They would say, mm -hmm. I want my depression to go away. I want to erase my depression with this session. I would say, I don't know how likely that is to happen quite in that way, but I think we could get closer to that goal that you want. So I think we could, you could be, you could, you could, you could use the session to express curiosity about why this depression has been so intractable. And I think mm -hmm. you might get a, a meaningful, helpful, you'll be successful in getting a meaningful, helpful, useful answer there, there rather than setting yourself up for disappointment and saying, I thought this was a magic bullet. I wanted to take one dose of psilocybin yeah. and not be depressed anymore. So, so that we, we kind of help people shape their intentions, mm -hmm. but yes, we are encouraging them to look at what's problematic. I mean, at least me as a psychologist, I'm, in, I'm encouraging people to look at what's problematic in their, their life or why they signed up for the study. Um, and, and once that priming is done, it's a little more natural. It's a little more intuitive that that's the stuff that's going to come up on their psychedelic day. You know, mm. the, those prep sessions are really are, are, are crucial. I think. If you, um, is it possible if someone took uh, psilocybin or some other psychedelic and they were just kind of like, and they didn't have um, like a bipolar relative or any like negative thing like that happen, is it possible for an experience to be negative in terms of like if they're, if they're like more uh, elastic or whatever, and they're exposed to something like terrible in the environment, are they more likely to be traumatized or anything? Is there anything like downside of using this outside of just like, uh, of like, you know, something bad happening to your brain, like the bipolar stuff that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple questions. There's a couple of thoughts I'm having in response to your question. The first is what is the setting that the mm -hmm. psychedelic is being taken in? So what's the setting? And then the second is, um, what's a bad trip or what's a, mm -hmm. excuse me, challenging experience or something. So those are two separate, separate questions. So, you know, you were asking earlier about like, do people spontaneously get better, even if they don't intend for the set, they just took some mushrooms, but that they get better. And then I say, yes, sometimes that happens. But the problem is that when people, sometimes when people use psychedelics uh, recreationally, there are variables in their set in the setting that aren't mm. being taken into account. So like, let's say somebody's at like the fish concert and they take a bag of mushrooms and 
they lose their friends and they're at a big concert and they, they can't, you know, that's, 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 you know, that can be scary if you're not on psychedelics, if you lose mm -hmm. your whole friend group and you're lost at a big concert or something. If you're on a psychedelic, that could be like really kind of panic inducing, maybe even traumatic to be in such a, such an environment. So, um, so there's ways where uh, in the, in, in the clinical setting, we try to reduce and limit all extraneous noise so that the person is totally safe. They don't have to worry about even like getting a drink of water or like going to the bathroom or is there going to be a loud truck that goes by or I mean, sometimes I guess there is a loud truck that can go by the medical center where I work, but it's not, it's not as common. And it's like a little more um, like we, we, we can anticipate when things are going to uh, uh, disrupt the session and, and, and help the person work around them or work through them versus if they weren't anticipating those, those variables in, 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 in setting. So, so basically the advantage of taking psychedelics in a medical setting with trained therapists is that it reduce it doesn't necessarily, I don't know if it always makes the, the, the session more therapeutic and more useful, but it makes it, it's, it reduces the chance that it would be harmful and bad. Mm. And, stuff and right. Okay. So that's the first thing I would say is like paying attention to the setting, including the interpersonal setting, the environmental setting that the psychedelic is administered in. Um, you know, also a sterile fluorescent lit hospital room is not as pleasant as like, you know, a more chill living room kind of setting with lamps and rugs and that kind of, that just tends to make people more at ease than if you're in like a sterile white room with people with white coats and stuff. And, um, and then to your point about like, can it ever be a bad experience? Um, that, that's a complicated question. I think like a long time ago, the, 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 I believed and the spirit and the, and that I perceived in our culture believed that, uh, yeah, there was such a thing as a bad trip and it could be scary mm. and bad and harmful. And there wasn't anything good there. And it was meant you took too much or you did something bad or you were too upset when you took it or whatever. Um, I think that that is possible. I think, but my, my thinking around that has evolved where like, I think it's, it's common for anybody who's using a medium or high dose like psilocybin um, who's taking a medium or high dose of psilocybin will experience some anxiety and that mm. some elements of the experience are going to be unpleasant. It's like, if you look at what patients report in clinical trials, like the vast majority of them uh, endorse will say, yes, I experienced some transient anxiety during the experience. Oh, oh, really? You were anxious? Yeah. Would you wish you hadn't done it? No, no, no. I, re I was really glad I did it. It helped a lot. But you were anxious during the session. Yeah, yeah. It was really anxiety provoking. Okay, but it mm. helped. Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't necessarily bode on the outcome what the session feels like. It's just like, can that anxiety, I mean, nobody wants to feel anxious, but can that anxiety be kind of tolerated and yeah. contained by the therapists and the, by the person? Um, and then later I heard this thread of like, there's no such thing as a bad trip. There are only challenging trips, meaning mm. like something's going to come up for you and it might be deep trauma that you haven't processed or some way you look at yourself that you didn't want to face and now you got to face it. And it's really, it really sucks. And it makes you cry the whole time or something. Um, I think that's mostly true. I think like things that feel really bad in a psychedelic session can be potentially therapeutic and helpful. But also, I think sometimes there can be bad trips. Sometimes there can be, and it's usually, usually again, related to like, there's a problem in the setting, this person took the wrong dose, or they mixed it with another drug or something, you know, there's other reasons, there's other things that might contribute to that. But like, I could imagine somebody having a powerful psychedelic experience that is not helpful, 
and is only challenging and they didn't really get much out of it and they wish they hadn't done it. That's, I think there is the possibility of experiences like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, And then in terms of uh, follow through, we touched on this earlier, you know, if, if you spend a lot of time on something, but then like a year or two later, you're back, you regress to the mean or whatever the statistical way of saying that statement is, um, what, what are the outcomes with people who uh, use these type of therapies and then, you know, have support, supportive uh, mechanisms to maintain it? You know, like if, if it's like uh, some type of addiction, I don't know if they have like, they have uh, a structure in place that if they're getting those types of uh, impulses to, you know, think of something else or whatever, like whatever that would look like. But um, what are the long-term effects of these types of therapies? Yeah, I, I think the jury is still out there. Mm. I, I believe they they will show promise um, mm. that I think they will have a powerful lasting effect as so long as they're administered safely and wisely and and skillfully. Um, if somebody could have a powerful psychedelic uh, session, and if they don't really take the time to integrate that and try to plug in whatever insights they got from that experience into their life you know, in a year's time, they could say, I had this really awesome experience, but I don't really remember that much about it. And I don't remember what I was supposed to do with my life. And, you know, so there is a lot of work that has to be done besides just experiencing the psychedelic um, in order to, to, to create those lasting benefits. And I think that's where therapists can really be helpful. Mm -hmm. the, the clinicians who are helping guide those experiences, a lot of the work that we can do is to help people kind of concretize, to crystallize what has emerged in the session to say, all right, what are you going to do the next year with your life? Oh, I'm going to be nicer to my spouse and I'm going to take yoga and switch careers or whatever. You know, it doesn't have to be all external changes like that, but like, um, you know, helping somebody really mobilize what came up. Um, and otherwise they could, they could just sit on it. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, to your point, I, there, I don't know if there, there is not good data yet on long-term follow-up. I think there are some studies where they've done one or two year follow-up and it's looked pretty good. I'm curious in five-year follow-up or 10-year follow-up yeah. and, and really, and, and also I'm curious in what is the right dose of support that somebody needs for those five or 10 years to maintain their gains. Does that mean if they're quitting smoking or drinking, joining AA or something, or does it mean seeing a regular therapist or does it mean seeing the therapist that you saw for your psychedelic session three times a year, just to remember what, what you talked about together or you know, I don't, I, I think it's going to be different person to person. I do think there's going to be need to be some scaffolding like that mm -hmm. built out from the psychedelic experience through into somebody's life so that there's a, 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 a sort of a permanent change uh, affected. So to, to answer your question, I don't know that I don't have the numbers on it, but mm -hmm. I think it's prompt. I think there's potential for good long-term change. And I think it will require a lot of work in addition to just ingesting a, a psychedelic. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it also, uh, goes to what you were saying earlier where it's like the idea is not to have a quick fix like people lead very complex lives something that has helped you today might be um unraveled by you know a, a major stressor in the future so having like a you know having this having the confidence to know like hey this is a tool resource to help you if you were to get in such a quagmire again uh, additionally having the strength with the support system with work knowing that you can improve over time like that's a really powerful thing i think uh, a lot of times with people that have no I know who have anxiety or uh, maybe like lowercase, uh, you know, D depression. It's like they have a form of helplessness where they just think, oh, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. So just, you know, having there's something I can do and you can put a lot of work into it. 
I, I, I told my friend recently that's like, all right, you have all these problems, well, this problem that you're having, but if you work at it really, really hard for like five years, do you think you'd have the problem? He's like, no. It's like, well, then what do you want to, do? what do you mm -hmm. want to look like mm -hmm. in five years? You know, yeah. like imagine how good it'll feel if you don't have this, this, this issue. Totally, totally. It reminds me of a quote, and I, I hear different variations on the quote. Yeah. So I'll use five years for this one. Most people uh, overestimate what they can yeah. do in, in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in five years. So, like a year is a, it's a good chunk of time, but it's it's hard, you know whatever the goal is, if you're trying to get healthy or become less depressed or get a new job or whatever the thing is, start a start a relationship. It's like that's that could that, that might be possible in a year. It might not be. But five years of just dedicating yourself to that, I would I would be hard pressed to find somebody who hasn't affected some sort of change um, on 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 one of these fronts. Um, so yeah, yeah. But but yeah. So we see then the, the the problem is bigger than any kind of technology that's available mm -hmm. to us. It's like a cultural issue that we're inclined. To, we want we. I think in our in our culture we like we like fast, good, measurable results, and sometimes those kinds of results. Uh, are are predicated by other slow forms of change that might take time. So somebody like somebody, if they are in in a you know if they're, if they're in therapy for two years, that's like a deep intensive process of like getting to know yourself better. And if you know yourself better, you may be able to circumvent those little pitfalls of depression more skillfully. Versus if I see somebody for eight sessions, I might be able to give them a little tool to jump over that pitfall of depression, but it's not going to work all the time. And it's not based in their own self knowledge, their own self uh, wisdom. I'm going on a mm -hmm. tangent here, but it's just, <laughs> it comes to mind as you talk about kind of no, quick, quick fix versus long-term. And Yeah, I, I agree with the, the uh, and I don't think that there's, you've been on a tangent yet in this conversation about these subjects, because there's just, they're so integrated with so many different things in the world. So uh, they make, uh, what you're saying is make, make sense to me though. In fact, one of the one of the things I look for when you look at you know online, if it's like oh I want to get healthy, I want to do this, I want to do that, anything that says like quick fix, it's like all right, just just to, like if you can visually delete that from from what you saw, you'll probably be happier for it because uh, like there are I I really don't think there are quick fixes there. In fact, if if you can say like well if you work really hard for uh, an extended period of time doing these things, you have a, a pretty good chance of working out the way you want it to do. Now you don't have a hundred percent guarantee because there's no guarantees in life. But it, it, you have a pretty good chance. It's like, all right, I, I'll do that. You know, like, uh, if in fact, like, uh, I'd, re I'd recommend anyone like pick something that they would love to be good at, but they're not good at, and just spend like twenty minutes, like three every other day, mm -hmm. doing that. And to be, you'll be surprised how good you get in one month. Just like twenty oh. minutes every other day. It really oh. compounds. Yeah, totally, totally. And 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 also, most people suck at anything that they start you know like yeah. i can think of any anything that i'm good i feel like i'm good at like I, for example i play the drums i've played the drums for 30 years i was terrible when i started i was like the the drum teacher would like yell at me and stuff and was like you don't you're not any good and you're not practicing mm -hmm. enough and you're this and that and i could have been you know i fortunately i happened to stick with that one but um, but you're totally right like like everybody there's that clumsy phase of getting started but a little bit of persistence and dedication including if the issue is our own mental health um can go a really long way yeah that's one of the reasons why sometimes i i not push back but i, I think around this idea of like oh follow your passions but um if you only follow what you your passions or what you enjoy you can only really pursue what you already know you enjoy mm -hmm. so then how how do you know there's not something out there that if you just get over that hump It'll integrate with what you already are good at in a way that'll it'll set you, it'll put you on a path to what you could be uniquely great for the rest of your life. And so, like, you, I feel like follow your passions, like do what you enjoy. But also, there's an element of if you explore things that you don't know and you get over that hump and you do it often enough, it becomes easier to learn new things. And then you can kind of just discover more of what you want to be doing.
Totally, totally. You think about like somebody, I mean, no dis, no discredit. I, I think video games are fun, no discredit to video games, but somebody's like, they play video games and that's what they do in their spare time. And then they have a friend that says, hey, you should start a small business. That's a cool thing to do in your spare time. Make a little extra cash. Say, no, I don't want to do that. It sounds like effort. It sounds like, it. and the other person could say, no, I really enjoy it. It's fun. I work with a few people I like and it's I make a little extra cash. It's enjoyable to have that too. Um, like if that person didn't give it a, a shot, they could just be, you know, think about, parallel universe where they stay playing video games or where they start a small business in five years maybe they do really and they're getting the same enjoyment out of that thing as they are out of the video games but then they're getting all the other you know, social benefits or financial benefits or whatever again no discredit to video games i just yeah. picked, I, I, it was just a, a poor uh poor straw man that i just picked for that, for this, yeah. for that discussion. and maybe you integrate business with the video game and you build video games or work with video game studios to do testing and you make videos of it and that, now you have a little uh, youtube career so yeah. like there's a, there's always like you know how do you integrate things which is really uh difficult the so uh, w one question i have is um do uh does does me is memory affected at all just focus on psilocybin in terms of the experience like are you able does it does it affect memory and i guess what i'm really trying to ask is like do you remember the whole thing accurately what you experience or is there an element of like fading you know yeah if that's a good that's a good question um like pharmacologically i don't i'm not able to speak with yeah. sophistication about how it affects memory systems, but just like phenomenal subjectively, phenomenologically. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's common. I think what's interesting is that you would see somebody in an altered state of consciousness. So it's this, the whole state of consciousness is unfamiliar yeah. to them. It's another, it's another like mode of operating. So there's their like conventional mode and maybe they have sleep mode and, drunk mode and a few other modes in their life, but they're basically in the, in these sort of conventional states of consciousness. Um, and, uh, so I could imagine it could be hard to bring to mind that state of consciousness spontaneously when you're not in that state of consciousness anymore. Mm. And so I think, yeah, to, this kind of touches on your earlier question of the importance of like, how do you build out support to help the ex experience stick? And, some of that starts from right after the session is done and the next day helping somebody write down, draw a picture, record yourself talking, talk to a therapist, make, put articulate what happened to you so that it's knowable to you in different form formats than just that weird altered state of consciousness that you can pick up your journal and read what you wrote and say, oh, I remember that. That was so meaningful. And I, I wouldn't have been able to remember. I just saw this vision. It was this shape that meant this thing to me. And I would have you know, if I hadn't written this down, I would have just remembered the shape and I would have vaguely thought mm -hmm. that it meant something to me, but I wouldn't have known why. So yeah, I think, I think in that sense, memory can, can, can fade and it's really important to articulate what has happened in different ways so that it, 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 it sticks and it's, and it remains accessible. It remains, you know, um, in your uh, tackle box, as you said, uh, it's, it's there yeah. and available to you. Is it, uh, will, will this technology, these therapies, um, do you think it'll be useful even for people with like low grade anxiety or uh, people who've had like not not extreme traumatic events, but just like regular traumatic events, able to rebound and have a healthy life? Or do you think that, uh, yeah, I just, let's just leave it there. What do you think about these therapies uh, for um, like average people with, you know, the problems that they're dealing with in their daily lives? Yeah, yeah. Also a very excellent question. Um, some of the ways, <laughs> some of the terms uh, that are used in the psychedelic field to talk about like regular people who don't have a psychiatric illness 
using psychedelics. And I've heard the, you know, the betterment of well people is one phrase I've heard, or another is um, the, the, the phrase we will use in clinical trials, like if we're testing a psychedelic, but it's not to treat depression or something, we're just looking at doing brain scans or some other thing, we'll call them healthy normals. Um, so, but, but basically, yeah, I think like, um, short answer, absolutely, I think psychedelics could be really helpful for all sorts of people, not just people who have some sort of moderate to severe psychiatric distress. But I think there's like an incentive in our culture that um, if something is a medical treatment, it is legitimized or something. We could yeah. say the same thing with cannabis, right? Where like now, you know, I don't even know how many states cannabis is legal on the state level. I mean, something like half maybe, but um, I remember, uh, you know, years and years ago, um, we had to see, you had to get a prescription, at least in states where there was medically, I think there are still a few states where it is not legal, but there, it is medically acceptable to use cannabis. And so you go see a doctor, you say, hey, doc, I can't sleep, or I'm having have PTSD or I have anxiety, can I get some weed? And they say, sure. And so I think on a cultural level, whether you were pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis, you were observing people who were patients who were suffering, safely using cannabis and getting better. I don't, I don't wanna to speak to the perform track record of cannabis or the risks or anything of that sort, but I'm just saying on a general level, you see, oh, this is a medical, this could be somewhat of a medical treatment. I mean, it helps with epilepsy or insomnia or chronic pain or whatever. Um, I think that just makes it legitimate in our culture's eyes. It says, okay, mm. this thing is safe enough to be a medicine. It surely should be safe enough to be something that an average person can use. Yeah. Um, so, so I think absolutely psychedelics can help people who aren't in severe distress in the same sorts of ways that it can help people who are in severe distress. It can give you that mm -hmm. perspective shift. It can help you work through or process something that's traumatic. It can help you um, understand yourself more deeply. So the things that are helpful for somebody who has, let's say, a major depression or severe PTSD could also help somebody who doesn't meet criteria for any of those disorders, but they're just sort of existentially stuck, or they just feel, you know, they have the blues a lot. They're maybe not mm. clinically depressed, but they just have a hard time, they have a hard time finding their, their, their groove in life or something. And I think there's, yeah, the, the, um, these compounds can be really helpful in that way. In particular, there's a, a guy named Bob Jesse, who um, has been really a seminal, quiet force in the uh, psychedelic world. Um, he had something to do with the assembly of the team at Johns Hopkins, who's been doing great work and the administration of the work that they've done there. He's sort of local out here. And he's done, he does, he, he has his hand in a lot of different um, projects in the psychedelic world, but he started, uh, I think it was the, it's called the Council on Spiritual Practices, hmm. um, which is a small, I think it's like a public organization or nonprofit. I don't, I can't, I don't know how uh, organizations are, are classified uh, well, so I don't know how to speak to it that well, but you know, something like that, something uh, is not, 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 not a profit uh, pr uh, producing organization, which has put, put forth um, the idea of like, uh, the, that's where the phrase, the betterment of well people comes from is from Bob Jesse. And I, I don't know where he derived it from, or if he came up with it himself, but um, that it's, you know, you could even say on a political philosophical level, it's our birthright to be able to use things that come from the earth um, to help ourselves. And we don't have to have some doctor tell us that this is, you know, you, you, you meet criteria, you don't meet criteria and that the doctors are the gatekeeper. In fact, actually, let, let me zoom out and talk about how there are a few different routes to legality for psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I was mo mainly focusing on the FDA approval route, which yeah. is like, if you do enough clinical trials with, an, uh, with enough 
uh, patients and demonstrate that it's very helpful and it's not harmful and you keep doing that for a million years, <laughs> eventually the FDA will approve uh, a, a, new, a new drug and it will be, it's legal at the federal level. But still doctors, pharmacists, et cetera, are the gatekeepers and they have to say, yes, you can get this or no, you can't get this. On the completely other end of things from the kind of grassroots side of things we've seen at the municipal and state levels, decriminalization measures where people say, Psychedelics are, compared to many illicit drugs, not very harmful. They have a lot of benefits. People can use them safely and wisely. People can grow them on their own. Why don't? Why are these not accessible to this uh, to us? And mm -hmm. and so we've seen municipalities like Denver, Oakland, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, which have decriminalized like entheogenic plants and fungus, mm -hmm. and then existing at the state level too, Colorado, Oregon, etc possibly California in the, in the, in the near future. Um, and so that's a completely different route to legalization, which doesn't put the gatekeeping in the hands of medical professionals. It says you Lowell or your neighbor, or anybody who is a person has a, has a right to be able to grow and use these things just like you would flowers or food or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I was, once again, lost track of your question, but it made me think about just this. I think it's important, mm -hmm. though, for listeners to understand the, the the different routes towards legality that exist right now. The FDA approval federal route and then the grassroots city state sort of level of, of mm -hmm. decriminalization. Yeah, the I, I could see many uh, benefits for having the different routes. Uh, the two, two that I, I wanted to ask you about, your, either your thoughts on it or your experiences with it, is uh, these type of. I think I imagine people who you know have lost a loved one, and it's like, could it help them? Uh, I've heard of I've heard of stories where people who are terminally ill taking psychedelics and it helps them there, mm -hmm. and it's like you're I mean that is you know a very bad experience, especially depending on what you have going on as well. So anything that can give them solace and a peace of mind is pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. So um, have you have you seen any of that yourself, or what are your thoughts on? Uh, psychedelics in helping people through loss and um, potential, you know, like their own terminal illnesses, life. Yeah, yeah. I, I That's been one of the flagship applications of psilocybin mm -hmm. in this modern era of research is to look at people with like late stage cancer, people who are imminently terminally ill. Um, and, you know, there's not any sort of idea that the psychedelics are going to help the illness, but usually these are people who let's say they have six months or whatever left to live. Yeah. And they're so imagine being so racked with like depression and anxiety that you can't even enjoy the time you have. It's like, you want to spend time with your family and your friends and, and do some, some, some things before your time is up. And it's like to have those obstructions of like intense anxiety and fear and, and depression and sadness blocking connection with other people. That's a tragedy. So I think psychedelics are remarkably powerful to help this population of people. Again, it may not slow the course of their illness necessarily, but it it will make those last days, months, weeks that they have uh, more more meaningful. That they can get what they want mm -hmm. out of those out of that that time. And so that's um, you know sometimes you'll hear in cancer treatments different uh, you know chemo or radiation or whatever it prolongs somebody's life. It's like well this will yeah. buy you another three months or something. And so that's a way of extending the quantity of life. It seems like with psychedelics, it, ex it uh, expands the quality of the life so that it's mm -hmm. like you're at peace so that you can really connect, enjoy your time with your your kids or your parents or whoever it is that you're you know preparing to say goodbye to. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah. And I think another thing is like with people who are terminally ill, we don't have the time 
to try different things to see if they're going to yeah. work. You can't just say, oh, try a year of conventional therapy first. If that doesn't work, then you may only have six months. You need to throw, you know, bring out the big guns immediately. And so mm-hmm. I think for this population too, um, psychedelics are, are, are uniquely special, uniquely powerful, or, or have the potential to be. Yeah. And then uh, this is like a general question I have, because I, I think I heard this in a podcast or something somewhere, which, you know, you never know if these things are real. But I heard this thing where, people sometimes get stuck at the age that they experience trauma. Is that, is that like a real thing? And have you seen this to be true? It's like, mm. it's, I'm like basically asking you, is this wives tale something like someone could hang a hat on? Cause it sounds like, you know, psilocybin or whatever would be able to help them break from that. But I'm, I'm curious, is that do people get stuck in that way? I, I think that's kind of like an oversimplification, mm. but I think there are ways where that's somewhat true. Like, um, uh, you know, there's a term, I think it's arrested development. And I remember it was that show from the yeah. 20 years ago or whatever, um, which by the way, a pretty good show, but, um, but the, but the term, I think it comes from psychiatry, maybe old, old, older school kind of psychoanalytic psychiatry, but the idea that your development is arrested, it's stuck at a particular place in time. And I think there are ways where that's true. And I think where you might see that that's where you might um, see that that's true is like in people's coping styles where somebody mm-hmm. might be a, an adult, they may be in their thirties or forties or fifties, but they may have certain like immature ways of coping that you might expect a teenager or younger to do. And I think some, and sometimes that's related to trauma. Um, I think, yeah, there's also, yeah, there, there's a, there's, I, I think with trauma, there certainly can be a stuckness. Like somebody mm-hmm. is somehow limited from living their lives, their life more fully because their trauma is kind of holding them in place in some manner of speaking. You could think about that in terms of time, like, oh, it's holding me at age 16. Or you could just mm. think about it in terms of progress. Like, I'm so numbed out from my PTSD that I have a hard time connect- dating and connecting with people. So I can't, like, make meet a girlfriend uh, that because I'm so shut down. So I could, mm-hmm. you know, I could be stuck in another sort of way. It could not yeah. necessarily in terms of what age I feel like I am, but, like, my ability to have a relationship with somebody else or, or something like that. Um, so anyway, long story yeah. short, I think it's, I think there is, I think that's an oversimplification, but I think there are threads of, of truth to it. Yeah. When, when a therapy happens, is it like a dam breaking in terms of the, let's say they're, they were like having, you know, not a good coping mechanism or some form of like thread that we were just talking about. Is it like a dam when the therapy, like a psychedelics is administered in breaking, allowing them to like not catch up, but like. Uh, move to the state of what healthy would have been like if they didn't have that coping mechanism or that negative thing happen. Is it is it rapidly that gets there or is it like uh, like a I don't know like a dam that's like slightly enlarged? Like what is it what is it like when um, the experience of it when you have something like that? Yeah, yeah, okay. If I'm gonna stick with your dam metaphor, <laughs> yeah, probably dam, not. With your, with your dam, <laughs> it's metaphor. terrible. <laughs> no, 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 it's, terrible. Not, it's, it's good. It's good. I was trying to make a play on where I was like your yeah. dam metaphor. Um, but no, we stick with your damn metaphor. You can think of like, <laughs> <laughs> like therapy is like regular therapy without psychedelics. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like trying to disassemble the dam one stick at a time. Okay. So that's going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you administer a psychedelic, I don't think it like blasts through the dam. And I don't even think I would want to do that because I think they're like the coping style that somebody developed because of their trauma 
is meaningful. It's useful for somebody to know that about themselves. So to completely erase it and blast by it and just be at this like optimal state of functioning or something actually does them a disservice in terms mm. of like getting to know that part of themselves that emerged. It's like, yeah, you needed to be extra tough when you were getting when bullies were beating you up at school. And so that's why you have this kind of rigid, extra, uh, you know, harsh exterior. And it's important to know that about yourself, that you have the capacity to have this harsh exterior. Sometimes that can be really helpful for you. Sometimes it may be really harmful if somebody wants to get to know you better and you're presenting this harsh exterior. So there really is a utility for somebody to examine and explore themselves. So I think what I would think of is like psychedelics, what they, what I would think of they do is like, it's like a helicopter ride over the dam to see mm. what's on the other side of the dam. And you can say, oh my gosh, there's this whole world here. And I'm like, yeah, see, I was telling you about that. And then you, <laughs> then you take the helicopter and the psychedelics are done. You take the helicopter back, you're still at the dam, but somebody may be quite a bit more inspired to disassemble that dam. And, um, you know, so it doesn't do the work, but it, it yeah. really helps you see the direction that you're supposed to be going in. Mm. When I was in graduate school, one of, part of my research, I interviewed people who used psilocybin um, mushrooms for, personal growth and spiritual growth and stuff. And I remember one person in the study said, uh, it was like flying a helicopter. It was like climbing a mountain and it was like taking a helicopter to the top of the mountain and seeing what's at the mountaintop. And it was really inspired. You know, he wasn't, he didn't get to live there, but he got zapped back down and it made a lot more sense why he would be trying to go up the mountain, why he was trying to better himself and his life and stuff. And so it's, it gives you perspective more than mm -hmm. it like, lasts through any any structure or something i think yeah is it is it possible to without medical intervention psychedelics etc to uh i don't know like yoga or something to get to build in similar perspectives into someone's life so if someone's listening in you know they're they're having a busy life and they they're you know i don't know, maybe eventually going to find a psychedelic therapist or a therapist in general um but they want to do something today to help out their mental health um to get the perspective to improve their lives um is yoga something like what, what are some things that people could do yeah i mean the the <laughs> the sky's the sky's the limit like <laughs> and, and, you know there's 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 really different totally different strokes for different mm. folks um, yeah I, I like yoga i think it's great i think it's like i think you know there's there's some basic physiological stuff that is important for feeling better. It's like mm. are you getting enough sleep. Are you eating a, a balanced diet? And like everybody has different opinions about what's a balanced diet. If you ask a vegan or someone who does keto or carnivore, or you know, there's a million different types of diets. But it's like, are you getting some vegetables in there? Are you getting some fruits and some protein and stuff like that? And are you drinking enough water? Are you and and in terms of physical exercise, yeah, are you moving your body? For some people, it's training for a marathon. For some people, it's taking a walk or doing. You know, other people, it's taking yoga or lifting weights. It doesn't doesn't really matter, but it's like to find the thing you'll do. But these are like these are the things that there's there's not a lot of financial incentive in the market to pursue. It would be mm. you know for for companies, it, it's it's. Um, more lucrative to present a flashy option of like, here's some sexy psychedelics that are going to dissolve all your trauma. But in reality, like, yeah, just like exercising three times a week and trying to sleep you now seven hours a night and drink some cups of water every day is just doing that alone could probably help somebody feel remarkably better. Um, mm. So, but, but to answer your question, like, I think it's different strokes for different yeah. folks. So somebody's going to hate yoga and they're going to be really not like going to class. That's probably not going to enrich their life. Mm. Um, if somebody really in, takes to it and they enjoy it, it makes them feel good. Then they're gonna they're gonna get something out of it. Yeah.
Yeah, and then uh, one question I always like to ask is, what books would you recommend people check out? It does sound like you would recommend the more Immortality Key, which talks about uh, uh, um, Immortality Key. Brian it's like a, It is. It is. A, yeah, that is exactly his name. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a that's a good. One. I I uh, I've heard him multiple times on different podcasts and interviews. Mm-hmm. And I never got around to reading that book. Have you read it? I'm in the middle. I'm like uh, two thirds in it now, and I'm things. enjoying it so far. It's yeah. it's it's a it's it's an interesting hypothesis, and it does look like there's some interesting you know ergot and the pottery, all these other things, and even now with some um, churches mirroring uh, similar rituals when they're doing their own church services, like they're like they're you know it could be a pretty good compelling argument for what he's saying. So that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, what books would you recommend to people check out? Doesn't yeah, be psychedelic yeah. related. Sure, and I think. This one is, it's you know, it's it's often overstated. It's 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 often mentioned like a lot, and it's it already has plenty of of hype and buzz about it, so it doesn't need any more from me. But I'm just going to throw it out there anyway. Um, five six years ago, Michael Pollan re- uh, wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind. Michael mm. Pollan is he's an author and he's a journalism professor at Berkeley. In fact, he's one of the founders of the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, that place I work. Um, uh, so he's one of the people who who started that center. But he wrote this book, and yeah, I think it was 2017. I, I want to say that it was published, and uh, you know, he takes the perspective. He really looks at the the field not from a clinician. Like even in this conversation I've had with you, Lowell, I've probably used a lot of jargon and like talked about this with like a ver- from a very niche perspective in the field. Alan looks at it from like the perspective of an in, uh, investigative journalist. He doesn't know hmm. much about psychedelics. He tried a few psychedelics. He did a lot of interviews with people who are working in the field, even some of the people I mentioned here today and with you. Um, so he really breaks it down for like someone who's unlearned, who doesn't know about this field. They're like, well, how do you get started? How do you even understand what's happening? He's coming at it from the perspective of a novice and he writes about it from the, as, as from the perspective of a novice. So it's really great. He breaks it down in a way that's really, and he's very smart. So it's very clear and very understandable. Um, you know, there's, I, I've heard issues cited with his book too, that it omits, um, you know, some important uh, women that have contributed in the field, whether they're like indigenous people or um, people who have worked in academic and medical settings to advance the research enterprise um, I think that that you know that may be true, and there's other uh, there's a lot of other perspectives to take, but it's it, it's a nice starting place. I think is to yeah. read his he covers the history, he covers what's happening in kind of contemporary clinical trials, and he talks about his own experience. He takes he has like I think like a a low dose psilocybin session, and then like a medium dose psilocybin, and then like a medium dose LSD, and a high dose five meo dmt and he talks about each of those and um mm. and it's it breaks it down what what was it like and it's just it's he's it's it's hard to put language to psychedelic experience and he does a pretty good job with it i think yeah but um in terms of people being left out is there any women in particular that come to mind because I, I love to shine a light on them and research them later oh totally um well, there's there's many that come to mind um i think like at johns hopkins for example um, really, who has been their lead therapist and their lead, I think, therapy trainer? There is a woman named Mary Casamano. She's a social worker. Um, there's uh, a, a somebody that I've worked with at UCSF. Um, actually, I just had a conversation with her today, named Alicia Danforth, who has contributed remarkably to the field. Um, there was a researcher at, at Johns Hopkins who who left some time ago and has pursued other things related to psychedelics, um, but continues, remains in the psychedelic world. Her name's Catherine McLean. Um, 
There's, uh, I know a psychiatric nurse practitioner who's local out here. Her name is Julie Megler. She started an integrative clinic, uh, which offers psychiatric and psychotherapy services, including psychedelic integration, including ketamine assisted therapy, probably will offer other types of psychedelic therapy as they become FDA approved. The list goes on and on. There's, I mean, there's, yeah. there's innumerable women who've contributed to the field, but there's just that kind of thread of like erasure that sometimes exists where the, especially in like earlier, like the mid 20th century, the, you know, the names of the people on studies were mostly, mostly male researchers and stuff. And um, so I could, I could go on and on, but those are some of the women that yeah. immediately come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to highlight women, especially if they've been potentially ignored. Like I, I was recently reading about the discoverers of DNA, the, the double helix and how it looks like what, what it looks like. And, uh, it, there's there's some uh, research out there that supports that may, they might have like literally just like copied a woman's work. Um, oh, so yeah. Trick and Watson, those guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. There's like they, yeah, there's like some stuff coming out. If I remember right, where it, it looks like they literally like the the lady discovered it. And I wish I could remember her name so she could get the credit. Um, you know, was like, hey, this is what it looks like, and they like literally looked at her notes and then like, hey, we can go replicate this and then get the credit, which sucks. But um, so uh, we got a book. We have some great ladies to check out. Um, is there a place that you'd recommend people check uh, just to stay up to date with your work as it relates to this field? MAPS, I think, is a general, uh, any of the things that we talked about as institutions would be good to stay up to date with, but you specifically, how can people just you know follow along with your learnings with what you're doing? Yeah, um, so a couple of things. The first thing is our website that we have for the Berkeley Center of the Science of Psychedelics. Mm -hmm. is it's, it's a great website, and it's, yeah, it's, it's well designed. broken. It's, have you been on there, Lowell? Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool, and it's like there's, there's different... Um, there's different aspects, there's different facets to the center. There's a public education and journalism piece. There's a research piece. There's the training piece that I was mentioning before the, where practitioners come and train to, to deliver this kind of therapy. But even the website itself has a lot of um, information that is uh, uh, available to anybody in the public about psychedelics. So if you go to psychedelics.berkeley.edu, It'll take you to that website and there, you can just browse around. There's lots of just chock full of information about the kind of the current state of psychedelics and kind of the history of psychedelics, the different, um, uh, you know, the different cultural history, different clinical history that has uh, occurred over time is, I think, is well represented on that site. Yeah, um, it'll be in the show notes as well. So people don't have to think they're it's I was just saying for anyone who's like, oh god, I've got to write this down. It'll be in the show notes. You don't have to worry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I try to I I've been a little busy lately with like mm -hmm. uh my my kids and my work and stuff, but I try to keep my Twitter somewhat um uh current, uh maybe post at least once a week or something. So I'm that's at Joseph Zamaria. I think you can put that in the show notes too, and that's just mm -hmm. my Twitter, Twitter handle. Um, I don't have a, a huge uh, presence on Twitter, but I like to post about psychedelics and psychotherapy and psychiatry. And um, so I, I, the things that are important to me in the, in the, yeah. in the field, I'll, I'll, you know, retweet or tweet out or something. So um, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah. Those, those are the, those are the places I would think to think to start. Sweet. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for coming on the show, talking, telling us about the great research that's going on, potential new therapies that are going to be coming out to help so many different people. And um, just a huge thank you for coming out and everyone listening. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you if you learn something here, you know, put it in the comments or if you have a question, uh, I'll answer it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll research it for you. But uh, Joe, thanks so much for being here today. It's a real pleasure. I think you have a great podcast. It's enjoyable to listen to. So it's a real honor to be, uh, be on here with you. Thanks for the invitation. A quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today.